Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk about purpose with inspiring people making a positive impact with their lives. We are particularly interested in social enterprises and entrepreneurs. We will listen to them reflect on their journeys and take time to dig deeper in order to better understand what really motivates their choices. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome along to this episode. I know you'll enjoy this one as we get the chance to talk with Dr. Mike Dickison about Wikipedia, large extinct birds, and many other topics. Here's an excerpt from our conversation. Uh, So they talk often about nature and nurture. This was definitely a nature thing then. You were born into this, It seems to be. I was one of those dinosaur-obsessed children that I'm sure everyone knows. Mm. Uh, But I never really grew out of it. That's the difference. Mm. Um, I guess I was always fascinated by dinosaurs and extinct creatures. And the turning point was in New Zealand. At that time, I was very disappointed because I'd read in all my American dinosaur books how you could go out to the West and help dig up a dinosaur yourself and dreamed about that, but was very sad to find that that was not really possible in New Zealand. Mm -hmm. So I switched my fixation to the giant extinct birds and other vanished creatures. Um, And that ended up resurfacing years later uh, Mm -hmm. when I began to work on more but we're getting ahead of things. Mm. Well, we're going to dive straight into this interview, but if you enjoy it, then you might want to check out some of the earlier episodes as well, because this is one of many dozens of conversations that I've recorded in the last year. Now, here's the conversation with Mike. All right, so it's a pleasure to welcome Mike Dickerson, who's the New Zealand Wikipedian at large. That's right. Thanks for joining me. Thanks. It's lovely to be here. Um, On this show, what we do is we talk about what people are doing now, and I'm really fascinated in your role and what you're doing in terms of traveling around the country and talking with universities and others interested in Wikipedia. Mm -hmm. But before we get into that, I'd love to know a bit more about your background and just be able to set the scene, I guess, for how it is that you got involved in this. And um, so if you don't mind just taking our listeners on a journey in terms of uh, the opening question is, where are you from? Right. Well, I'm from almost right here. Um, I grew up in Christchurch, uh, born and bred, and mostly in East Christchurch. Okay. Uh, And at that point, when I was living there, we were in suburbs that were right on the edge of undeveloped land. So it was swamps and sand dunes, basically, with a few cows. Uh, And so that was a marvellous playground, of course, as a kid. You could just, we put a gate in the back fence so we could race off and play amongst the lupins and sand and wetlands. Uh, My brother would dress up in army uniforms and play World War II, and I would have a net and be looking for diving beetles and so forth in the the swamp. Mm. Uh, So we had kind of divergent interests right from a young age, and I guess that that typifies me is that I always had a collecting jar in my hand and was always looking for feathers and shells and rocks and bugs. Mm Mm-hmm. I was, so the natural world was... was absolutely, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, if you know the, the, the stories, the books of Gerald Durrell, uh, mm-hmm. particularly his childhood on Corfu, in which he was a nature-mad kid, I think actually they televised it recently as my family and other animals. Um, it was very much that model. I had always things living in jars or cases or boxes in the house, mm-hmm. and... It got so overwhelming that my dad made display cases for me, little glass-fronted museum display cases Hmm. in racks on the shelf so I could put all of my miniature museum collection on display. Yeah. Uh, So they talk often about nature and nurture. 
This yeah. was definitely a nature thing then. <laughs> you were yeah. born into this, right? It seems to be. I was one of those dinosaur-obsessed children that I'm sure everyone knows. Mm. Uh, but I never really grew out of it. That's the difference. Mm. Um, I guess I was always fascinated by dinosaurs and extinct creatures. And the turning point was in New Zealand. At that time, I was very disappointed because I'd read in all my American dinosaur books how you could go out to the West and help dig up a dinosaur yourself and dreamed about that but was very sad to find that that was not really possible in New Zealand mm. so I switched my fixation to the giant extinct birds and other vanished creatures um, and that ended up resurfacing years later uh, mm. when I began to work on more but we're getting ahead of things mm. yeah. so let's just go back where do you think that curiosity about the natural world came from like it was there examples in your family i you think know? so i mean my father was you know raised on a farm and was a very outdoorsy kind of guy um he would always be uh, joining me on these sorts of expeditions so mm -hmm. he would have a motorbike and we'd go out into the wilderness but we also were from a very new zealand outdoorsy camping family you know, every summer was caravanning by a river um, usually without electricity and kind of primitive toilets uh, with a bunch of other families or with kids also mm. um, and so that was that kind of very outdoors childhood that I think is is less common today I, I feel I think that's something that's rather missing from um, kids at the moment but we were allowed to run wild and explore and that was, you know, I look back on it now and I think, wow, that was such freedom that we were, <laughs> we were given in, in a country that's already a very outdoor-friendly um, place where it's just New Zealanders just see it as their birthright to go out to the bush or go to the river and swim. And mm. we get very upset when those things are taken away from us. Mm. So that was my childhood. And that probably turned me into the sort of person I am. I don't know what I would be like if I'd grown up in Manhattan, for example. Mm. Probably would have learnt to ride the subway at a very early age and explored art museums and such like. But it would have been a very different upbringing. And so mm. it's hard to disentangle that nature and nurture, isn't it? Mm, it is yeah there's so much dependent on you know the yeah. the lottery of where you're born right <laughs> so, yeah it is a lottery isn't yeah. it and so I've, I've something I feel very deeply is that now our birthright is a lottery and national pride for that for me mm. I feel very suspicious of because it's not something I've achieved being a New Zealander mm. um, I'm just very lucky I feel on mm. the balance to have been born here but it's not something I should feel pride of because I didn't do it. Mm. I was just fortunate enough that my parents, you know, happened to my, the, my Dutch side of my family happened to come here in the 50s. Mm. And my mother happened to have come to Christchurch and met a young Kiwi man. And, you know, all those accidents of birth mm. put me here rather than, say, Rotterdam or something. Mm -hmm. um, so we can't have too much patriotic pride in that because I didn't deserve it. Mm. Um, I just feel more kind of blessed or lucky that I happen to have been have been born with all these privileges, not just being you know, a white man, but in an English-speaking country rather than having to learn English as a second language, that mm -hmm. awful, awful activity, I'm told. Um, but also in a free country, um, relatively socially liberal, uh, with you know all of the state support for education and university that... Um, I would otherwise not have had. 
Um, I went through university at a time just before uh, student loans kicked in and it became expensive. It was extremely cheap for me to study. So, you know, I just think that a lot of my upbringing, despite my obvious, you know, tendency to be to be fascinated by the nature and the wild, has also been luck and lottery. Mm. And mm. I'm glad to be here, but I know lots of other people with similar sorts of inclinations but different backgrounds would not have had the sort of privileged life I've got right now. Mm. Can I just ask, ask a question? Just thinking, you know, you talked about little jars of, for collecting things. Yes. Do you think if you'd been in Manhattan, for example, that you would have found different things to collect rather well, than maybe nature? I would have looked at pigeons a whole yeah. lot. Yeah. <laughs> Although, of course, it's actually perfectly possible to be a natural historian in yeah. Manhattan. Central Park is constantly mapped and has birdsong um, surveys every year. You can mm. go watch the peregrine falcons um, down Fifth Avenue. Uh, so that tendency to be fascinated by nature manifests mm. and almost every environment mm. um, it's just harder to do it in a big city mm. but not impossible well it's certainly if you open your door and there's a beach and lupins and you yeah, know yeah. It, it's right on your doorstep it, yeah, it would yeah, make exactly. it easier yeah wouldn't it? yeah uh, so that during my childhood, that all got paved over and turned into suburbs, and that all disappeared. But by that time, I'd gotten so used to going hiking and tramping mm. and riding a little motorbike around that I didn't mind so much. I was able to, to get on the bike and try and travel across Christchurch and you know explore myself. Mm. It makes sense. I th- I'm just reminded of just echoing off of what you're saying um, I lived in Tokyo mm-hmm. um, for a number of years and I remember walking you know it's a very concrete place <laughs> but mm. I remember walking along and just seeing a flower that had bloomed mm. sort of mm. out of the I guess out of not rubble but you know like just it, yeah. yeah just it, there's a crack and it's somehow life has come out mm. and I remember being struck how beautiful that was mm. you know in a way much more than if it was a field full of flowers, it was just this one little one. Yeah. yeah, I think so. And um, yeah. there's it, a feeling that this uh, appreciation for nature is something innate in humans that was required for our mental health. And mm. uh, the theory is called biophilia, that we are actually designed to embrace nature. Um, and some have even said that this is an argument for the preservation of the wilderness because mm. it's something that's innate to humans. I find that a troubling argument because we can see that that, that is manifest. Even in the people of Tokyo, everyone loves nature and wants mm. to interact with it some way, but it can be as little for them as having a flower garden in mm. a pot, mm-hmm. um, a windowsill garden, or having a pet bird, mm. or even you know some... Uh, some paintings of trees on the wall. Mm. Uh, there's this obviously people are drawn to this, but it doesn't seem to take an awful lot mm. for us to get some of that kick from interacting with mm. nature. Um, and so I'm not sure that that's going to can be turned into the preservation of huge areas of wilderness mm. if people can be cities can be satisfied with quite a little. Mm. Yeah, I hear you. I mean, I'm reminded though, you know, pave pave paradise and put up a yeah. parking lot <laughs> like yeah. The, oh, yeah there's reasons isn't there to, people to kick preserve back. what people we can. do people fight for those little patches of green and people yeah. love you couldn't pave central park yeah so people need green space and they need it and it makes them happy and healthy mm. but they may not need as much of it as we think yeah you know as we're often told yeah well, the thing, because living in Japan, what I grew to appreciate about their culture is how they uh, 
they love the changing of the seasons. Hmm. So they'll go out in autumn to look at trees that are red and yellow. Right. Or in springtime, you know, hanami, it means look at the cherry blossoms, basically. Yeah. Um, and I, I always thought in the West, sometimes I think we just don't appreciate the changing of the seasons mm. the way that they mm. did. Um, it's yeah, really there's a very formalized me. relationship with nature in that culture, isn't mm. there? Mm. Which you can see that in the same in Maori culture has got a formalized relationship mm. with the natural world where every the seasons are marked by certain changes in natural phenomenon yeah. when the eels change color and when the, the um, shiny cuckoo returns and so forth. Yeah. So we get a little alienated from that in uh, Pākehā culture and yeah. many of us are alienated from the land of course when it was a farming culture there would be obvious seasonal changes when yeah. lambing starts and so forth um, and the spring rains but we in cities we've managed to insulate ourselves from a lot of that mm. and trying to rediscover that I think is, is one of the joys of getting mm. involved with, with natural history and getting the, in the outdoors yeah. yeah I knew I was in a different place when I was in Japan and the news had um, part of the news weather mm. it was saying where the cherry blossoms were um, nice. you know flowering that day <laughs> yeah well, and was, that was just built into the weather report is right. okay it's in osaka today and it's sort of moving up and yep. yeah well it was the same with the uh, viewing the leaves changing in north carolina where i spent right. um, nearly eight years hmm. you would go out to the blue ridge mountains and there would be reports on where the good colors were if you hmm. wanted to go and look at the beautiful you know it was considered this was a tourist attraction you would drive along the blue ridge parkway and pull right. over and just admire the foliage so yeah. there's an element of that same japanese experience there yeah for sure so um we've i, I love these sorts of conversations because we're going to go down a bunch of rabbit holes i oh, already know oh, but of course, of course. let's let's bring ourselves back sure. to your childhood and you know yeah. studying maybe in let's let's go yeah. to high school sure. what sort of subjects did you enjoy was it a natural outworking of what we've already yeah, touched about i was always about? fascinated by science and biology but never very strong in the maths mm -hmm. and physics. Uh, but I always had a strong humanities interest as well, um, which I guess is manifested in me never being able to settle on any one thing. Mm -hmm. So I took English and French right up to scholarship level. Um, and I was still torn at that time as to whether I would do arts or sciences at university, but mm -hmm. loved biology so much I did specialise in that. Mm -hmm. So I was at University of Canterbury here for a few years. I see. Um, studying mostly zoology and philosophy, uh, yeah. And it was a lovely experience too. I wasn't very happy at high school. It was a very sports-oriented school in those days. Mm -hmm. um, and I didn't really fit in because I was interested in theatre and played in the orchestra and such like. The orchestra, which started off as perhaps a string orchestra in my first year, whittled down until I think we were down to a quartet in my senior year okay. of high school. <laughs> uh, yeah, just sort of <laughs> gradually shed right. people. Oh, Very sad. Yeah, yeah. yeah but and, and you mentioned the um, extinct birds. Yeah. yeah. Was that, uh, when did you start getting into that, or was that even in childhood that was I something that you was, were interested That was in? something that's fascinating. From, from an early age, the Canterbury Museum ran mm. a museum club mm. Um, so sort of mostly aimed at families and kids. Mm -hmm. And my folks always religiously went along to that and took me. So they would have visiting lecturers, give talks, mm -hmm. and they would take us on field trips occasionally and nature study. 
And so I guess that, that was where my sort of fascination with extinct birds continued there because Canterbury Museum mm. is one of the world's centres of research and collection of moa mm -hmm. based on an enormous deposit called Pyramid Valley, which was excavated in the 1940s, a, mm. a swamp in North Canterbury and Glenmark as well. So they had an amazing collection and fully articulated moa skeletons, which made a huge impression on me as a kid. They mm -hmm. make an impression on even a grown adult, this. But as a child, you know, they're just gigantic. They are as close to a dinosaur as I could have wanted to come across. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, one of my favorite poets is Alan Kernow, and he wrote a poem about the giant moa at Canterbury Museum. That specific uh, moa, yes, that's yeah. right. Yes. Um, Yes, oh, I can't recite it from memory, but yeah. yeah, yeah it it yeah. ends, doesn't it? Um, not me, but the next generation will learn the trick of standing upright, upright here. Upright here, that's yeah. right, yeah. yeah. No, that's a beautiful poem. And yeah, it's uh, fascinating how much cultural baggage is placed on the shoulders, the poor shoulders of the, of the giant moor, <laughs> how much work it has to do. It used to represent New Zealand in the 19th century. We were called Land of the Moor, oh. uh, the Kiwi as our symbol only kicked in about World War One or so. Right. But yeah, we were famous for these giant birds um, yeah. back in the nineteen in the eighteen nineties. Hmm. That's fascinating. Yeah. So, so, so you started um, specialising into that at university. Was I that? was a more generalist, um, but right. I was always fascinated by museums. And my first job out of university was at the then National Museum in Wellington um, as a technician. Um, I was. I guess, yeah, fascinated by the idea of working in an institution whose job was not just to do science, but to communicate it to the public. Right. And when I started as a technician there, I very quickly moved sideways into an area called they called interpretation in those days, which was something of a liaison between the research scientists in the natural history section and the designers who built the displays. Mm. And those two groups often had real trouble talking to each other. Mm. They really they spoke different languages, they mm -hmm. understood things different ways. And so they experimented with a small unit of people who simply developed uh, exhibitions and worked between the designers and, and curators. Mm. Uh, and that was a really exciting environment to be in. Um, and it also rewarded initiatives like I wrote a science column for the Evening Post, uh, just mostly because no one was doing it and I wanted to and had the freedom to, as like a 21-year-old, start writing you know, newspaper stories about science. Hmm. Um, and began to... Because it's another way to communicate yeah, with yeah, the public. Exactly, right? Yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah. We came up with a project called Nature Space, which was it's novel, was novel then, it's common now, mm. to have an area full of things that kids could touch right? Uh, and have lots of collections available in drawers and cupboards that packed in there so kids could explore yep. and really interact rather than passively look at a museum display. And this was a, quite a novelty for the time, but I was part of that team, and we developed a whole series of outreach publications and handouts. Mm -hmm. And incidentally, just learning how to do the layout and design of those, mm -hmm. I taught myself uh, PageMaker and started working on my first Mac. So mm -hmm. that's where I began to start to build up um, IT skills, which I've always continued with the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. I think I was probably first introduced to Apple um, Max in uh, about 1988 or so at uni and uh, yeah have never really stopped. Mm. 
Oh, that's great. And that job that you um, that you took in Wellington, like that's well before Te Papa and the sort of the icon of the building that mm, it's become. Yeah. Um, where where was the museum at that point, and and what was it like? The bulk of the museum was still up on top of the hill in what's called Buckle Street. Okay. Um, and that's now that was Massey Campus for a while, and now Peter Jackson's exhibition is there. A momentous, monumental building of brown stone, hmm. very high ceilings. Um, and just walking through it, not just in, on the display areas, but behind the scenes, it had this 1930s era crusty patina of, of sort of scuffed linoleum and polished wood all the way through. So you felt you were walking through a, a really old-fashioned historic building. All the offices were like that too. It was a lovely place to work and be. Mm. And there were curators tucked away into the corners of it, pottering away at their old desks, shelves full of bones and insects and so forth or textiles or tayaha <laughs> all all just tucked around in, into the basements and the corners wherever they could so it wasn't a beautiful storage area like we're used to today um, and it was a lovely place to work uh, but the bulk of where I was positioned was in a different building down the down on Taranaki street quite away from that was the natural history unit um, and so there was already a split there, which has continued really philosophically between the science curators at Now Te Papa and the national, the main body of the museum, the decision makers and leaders and such like, have always been housed in different buildings um, for always for a very long time. At the, which point they, you know, when the Buckle Street building overflowed, I don't know how long ago, back when it was maybe it was still the Dominion Museum then. Um, and that's been, I think, bad for that institution because it's kept the researchers and scientists out of the decision-making process, metaphorically and physically. Mm. Uh, and we're seeing all sorts of problems even today when they're announcing potential cutbacks of collection management staff mm. at Tipapa. So uh, the Taranaki Street building, which was floors of offices and storage areas, a basement full of tanks and jars of pickled fish, um, huge amounts. <laughs> Sounds of, fascinating. Yeah. Oh, it was, it was an amazing playground. There was the Hall of Mammals, which was a giant storage area with mounted and deer heads and stuffed animals all right. wrapped up in there. At that point, I went, and this is my strange anecdote, I went on a game show in Wheel of Fortune and won a whole bunch of prizes, including a mm. complete home gym weight set. Right. Uh, and I wanted to, I didn't have a place to set it up at home, so I asked if I could find some space in the museum. And I set it up in the hall of, in the mammal storage area. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so I could get in early and work out before work, yep. surrounded by whale skeletons and mounted foxes and wolves and <laughs> deer trophies gazing at me. Yeah. Very strange space. Wow. So that was really nice, um, and that was just in the run-up to uh, the tape up a project when it was okay. just in the planning stages. Um, but you know, it was it was a lot of it was a rather fraught time because people were still getting their heads around what this would involve. A lot of new consultants and planners were coming in. This was definitely not business as usual for the museum. I see. Yeah. 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 So you come into that environment. And um, in terms of the extinct birds and, and yeah. things, is that something you were continuing to have an interest yeah. in? Or? So the formative person at that museum was Phil Milliner, who was the curator of extinct birds there at the time, Okay, uh, who was a bluff Kiwi bloke with a moustache and um, no-nonsense fellow. Uh, but he had done all his field work um, up in Northland for his PhD, excavating 
bird bones from sand dunes there, mm. and he developed the ability to pick up a random bird bone, hold it up, look for these almost invisible little knobs and twerks, and say, oh, it's from a pigeon. Hmm. Oh, no, that's definitely a kiwi. Uh, and I thought this was a kind of a magical power. Like, how can anyone do this? How can anyone take a nondescript little bone and say immediately what kind of bird it was? Hmm. Uh, and it was really fascinating to me that someone could do that. So I began to try and take a real interest in the sort of research that was being done in that area. And it was a fruitful time because there were really fascinating results coming from the Chatham Islands at that point, from the caves of Northwest Nelson, like Honeycomb um, Honeycomb Hill, uh, and even new species like something called a long-billed wren had been discovered and described from some tiny bones in caves a little extinct bird with a long down-curved bill mm. uh, related to the rifleman and rock wren of today, but uh, an extinct species that had not, no one had even suspected existed until um, the 1990s. Mm. So it's pretty exciting to be having yeah, discoveries yeah, yeah, yeah. of these. That was very nice, yeah. yeah. So that sort of sparked my interest, and I resolved that at some point I would love to go and actually study this because I was just, you know, I didn't have a higher degree at that point, mm-hmm. and that, that ticked away for some time. Um, but I took a career change at that point. I decided I wanted to try and run a little museum of my own. So a job was going at the Colonial Cottage Museum in Nairn Street, Mm. uh, Wellington, which was just a single staff member running a small historic museum. And I thought I would give this a go, but it was a terrible decision. It was awful. I did not enjoy it at all. Um, often those, those small historic museums are not actually run by the curator. They're run by the local historical society who have very firm views about what should and shouldn't be on display. Mm. And, you know, bless their hearts, they're all volunteers and very, very keen. But you don't tend to have the budget or freedom that you might think mm. in running a small museum. Right. So, Is it, Isn't that the first cottage that was built and, yes, it's and the had old, been preserved. The, the so. oldest inhabited, the o- oldest extant habitation in Wellington. Right. Uh, there are some older buildings, certainly in the other main centres, but yeah. that, was a, that was a pretty old one. Yeah. And it was a lovely building. It was a very pleasant place to, to work and be, but very quiet. So, mm-hmm. um, But at that point, I was realising that I, you know, I had some science communication skills, some writing skills, I thought maybe I could start trying to be a freelance science journalist. Again, not very successful at that, as I realized very quickly, it's easy enough to say you want to be a freelance science journalist, but right. it's really hard. Even in the early 90s, when they were still paying reasonable rates for stories, certainly not like now, uh, that was very hard and very, very real graft required to make a living of it. So that wasn't tremendously successful. Mm. And then a job came up teaching um, IT skills, a range of different skills. And I realized I actually knew all of these things. So everything from basic computer skills right up to desktop publishing and design. Um, At uh, one private training establishment, which catered mostly for long-term unemployed, another one which worked mostly with recent immigrants, usually refugees from those those days, the Balkan Wars. Mm. Um, And so I started to cobble together some teaching work doing that instead, which I found really interesting because it allowed me to explore not just information technology and Macintosh skills, but the internet, which was just a new thing at that point. Sure. And which I realized very quickly, this is a big thing that nobody, nobody I know knows how important it is 
and except for a few IT geek type folks that nobody listens to. Yeah. And so I was trying really hard to explain just how important the yeah. internet and this brand new thing called the World Wide Web as right. well, where you could, it was the internet, but with pictures. Yeah. I know. It's amazing, isn't it, to think, you know, this isn't that long ago in the scheme uh, of humanity. No. <laughs> and, and yet, because uh, I remember going to University of Canterbury, starting yeah. there in 1995 and right, being given right. my first email address. Yes. Like I was, you know, SHM at and then canterbury.ac.nz or something did did even remember yeah yeah what what is this thing written here on my enrollment form what do do i use this for yeah yeah how do i log in no and new zealand was was not even up to speed with with this sort of stuff yeah it was still lagging behind but i was a subscriber to wired magazine from the early days right even was from before the world wide web existed and i was convinced this was going to be important so i tried to throw myself into it and learn as much as i could yeah um, and taught myself basic HTML and web design. Mm-hmm. I was, I'm kicking myself. I had an offer from a friend of my brother's who was a, something of an entrepreneur. And he said, Mike, you know, yeah. New Zealand Parliament, they have all of these MPs and they don't have web pages. All we need to do is that we just need to approach them as contractors and we could get the contract to design all of the web pages for the New Zealand government. Would you do it? And I said, well, what's the cut here? He says, well, I'll get 50% of it for organizing it, and you do all the work. Right. I said, wait a minute. <laughs> wait a minute. No, I don't think so. So I foolishly turned down the opportunity to right. become a, a, a ground-level web designer in New Zealand. <laughs> Doing it for the <sighs> government. On a government contract. Yeah. I know my life would have been very different if I'd, if I'd agreed to that proposition. Of course, his would have been too. Yeah. Um, well, it's often that uh, yeah. way, isn't it? And the thing I love about our story so far is the contrast. You know, you've mm. mentioned that two of the things that you were trying weren't so successful. Yeah, yeah. And then yeah. you've moved on. But also I love the contrast between your love of extinct large birds mm, mm. and realizing that the internet was the future. Yeah, you know, yeah. Like it all a, sort of comes together, I think, because in fact, in the mid, no, about 1996 or seven. I created my first website, which was simply called the MOA Pages, ah. which was nothing but some text lists and text information um, about facts about MOA, because I couldn't find anything on mm. the internet at that point. And so I just maintained that. I think it's moapages.info it was under at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kept maintaining that and playing around with basic web design. I'm sure it's all there at archive.org. Mm. Uh, and I got uh, a job came up at Fiti Raya Polytech to run the desktop publishing and design program there, which didn't exist until that Mm. point. And and this I feel I'm displaying yet more privilege as a white male. I simply went to the interview and blagged my way into the job, despite having no design qualifications of any kind. I've been teaching this sort of stuff for Mm. a few years. Mm Mm-hmm. But I did not have a formal design background or degree. And suddenly here I was in charge of not just teaching, but developing from scratch <laughs> a design course um, running, you know, PageMaker and InDesign and teaching Illustrator and print production and all these things, which I sort of knew about, but I was staying just ahead of the students. Right. That. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing um, like a little bit of pressure to yeah, make yeah, you learn. Exactly. Yeah. So. Um, and so that was the sort of, but that was, that was representing sort of the end of a road for me because I realized 
I was my real love was not doing this yeah. for the rest of my life. I was always still interested in science, and I was I had some colleagues at Victoria University, and one of the professors there, Charlie Doherty, uh, explained to me, "Look, you need to go and do a PhD. You need to do your honours and do a PhD, mm. and you need to go overseas for your PhD work because." This just can't it can't support it properly here in New Zealand. He was an American, so he was somewhat biased. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, despite you know having a promising future in teaching desktop publishing and design at Polytech, mm-hmm. I gave it up and I was applying to universities at the same time um, in America to for the PhD programs. Mm. And so did you give up your job before you got a place, or was uh, it I was all it was all a sort of happening simultaneously. Yeah. On one hand, I was furiously teaching design and second I was going online and trying to learn about how the American university system works and mm-hmm. yeah I didn't really know what I was doing I did some I sat some exams and I sent in CVs and I searched through the websites of universities and states I had never really knew where they were mm-hmm. and ended up being accepted in the PhD program at Duke University in mm. North Carolina right I didn't really know exactly where North Carolina was. I felt it was sort of in the south somewhere, but it must be kind of in the northern south because of the name. So (laughs) I certainly couldn't find it on a map. I knew nothing about it. Right. Like, like where is, what is Duke? I've never even heard of this university. Yeah, you didn't know about the Blue Devils. No, no. Oh, I knew a lot about them soon, but I never, no, I had never heard of Duke University until I, I applied and right. got accepted. So and looking at it in retrospect, I was, you know, it was a complete gamble. Mm. Um, I had no advice or help from anyone about this. Because right. um, you I, could have shown up and it was just a really yeah, third-rate university been rather yeah, than a yeah. really good one. But they had, they had, I was judging everything by their websites. If they had decent websites, then I thought, okay, I'll trust them. Yeah. But it was, uh, yeah, and I was just approaching individual professors who were working on things hmm. to do with the evolution of birds and extinction or anything in that general field. It was kind of hard to find exactly what i was interested in yeah but anything vaguely familiar i would say hey could i would you accept me as a phd student if i applied and um i was really lucky that i got accepted by duke and they gave me funding for the first year and a little Mm -hmm. fellowship turns out they give that to quite a lot of people it wasn't that distinctive but they Mm -hmm. made it sound like a big deal yeah um and then in 1999 off i went wow so you're um headed off just before y2k (laughs) yeah 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 what was the topic area then for your phd um i was kind of it's all kind of nebulous i mean um you do two two years of coursework first in the american university system so you have a lot of time to try and settle on an actual project i had this idea i was going to look at the evolution of island birds Hmm. because when you put mammals on an island and they evolve they tend to evolve to either gigantic size like giant mice um, or they shrink like dwarf elephants or dwarf mm-hmm. hippos. And there was some sort of rules that had been thrashed out for how this worked with mammals. Mm-hmm. I was kind of curious as to whether there were similar rules that worked for birds. And I felt New Zealand and the Pacific in general would obviously be good places to work on that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I went to, arrived in North Carolina, which was much more humid and hot than I mm-hmm. had anticipated, and got out, jet-lagged, wandered out of my and house from the first day where I was being put up straight into a big overgrown pine forest full of V 
vegetation and poison ivy and a toad hopped across the path in front of me and I'd never seen a toad in my life of course um, and I was amazed and thought my goodness so this is this is a different world mm. and so I spent quite a few years there nearly eight years in fact and which is long for the PhD program there and they almost completely coincided with George W Bush too which mm. was also unfortunate um, <laughs> Yeah, and so 9-11 happened, um, Y2K happened, I had fr IT friends back in New Zealand that were convinced it was doom, doom yeah. and gloom was going to happen, this was terrible, they were saving the world by doing emergency... Emergency yeah. food supplies, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well they were, they were doing emergency programming oh, um, I see. Right. at very high rates to save the world, um, and it turns out nothing did in fact happen, that's so right. that's where I learned to be a bit suspicious about what IT professionals tell you. Yeah. Um, and then, then shortly after that was 9-11, where I was in the States 4, and which was a surreal experience as well, watching all the flags appear down my street the day after and watching, you know, protesting um, as troops were sent to Afga invade mm. Afghanistan and then a year later Iraq. Um, and at that point, we all felt this was the end times. I mean, this is... Mm. This president, this is the stupidest president that America has ever had. Mm. This is the worst, this is America's worst president ever. Um, and now we look back on those days, of course, <laughs> and we, George W. Bush has almost managed to rehabilitate himself. He's <laughs> turned himself into a cozy, genial duffer and who does paintings and um, entertains children and he must be thrilled at the way things have gone. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's quite a remarkable piece of work he's managed there. Um, so I was there for really interesting times in North American history. Mm -hmm. um, interesting to experience them from so close up. I wasn't in New York or near New York at the time, but I knew lots of people who were and mm -hmm. described it vividly mm -hmm. and visited it soon afterwards. Uh, and it was a learning experience too, culturally, because the American university system is set up really differently from the New Zealand one. Mm. Um, and the universities are so much larger, they're so much better funded. Mm. I had over a hundred colleagues in the graduate school where I was. Mm. Uh, and it turns out that when you have that many grad students, they form a little informal support network. They look out for each other. They develop rules and policies. They organize their own conferences and inductions and um, create jobs for each other. There's the greetings czar, the happy hours are, you know, the photography mm. rooms are. And it's fascinating that I remember that because it, it was a lesson to me that if you get well-meaning, skilled people together in an environment of essentially anarchy, leave them alone, they will not descend into chaos. They will actually start creating social norms and rules and constructive mm. and helping each other, primarily helping each other. Mm. And that's I see that manifest again in something like Wikipedia, which is a much larger version of the same thing, mm. which has evolved all of its own social norms and rules and managed all of this solely from the bottom up, from just letting um, smart people try and thrash things out themselves. Yeah. Well, I'd love to talk about Wikipedia, but just before we do that, in terms of your studying in the you know extinct birds sure. and things, what were some of the 
I guess some of the highlights or the things yeah. that you that you learned or that would be of interest to people listening? Well, I got to do research in museum collections all around the world because it was easier to ship me to the bones and ship the bones to me. Mm. Um, so I spent a couple of summers working in the Smithsonian, um, mm. the Natural History Museum there, which was a wonderful place, and I loved DC. Um, I got to travel through collections in Europe, which sounds tremendously romantic and exciting, except I spent most of my time in Paris um, in a shipping container in a car park um, measuring right. elephant, elephant bird bones. <laughs> so not a lot of um, strolling around. Still haven't not so up, glamorous. Didn't get up to go up the Eiffel Tower. No. Right. Um, but still, you know, I'm not complaining at all. I had these wonderful opportunities to travel and meet people and, mm. and have adventures like that. Mm. A couple of summers in Vienna. Yeah. So uh, what I was trying to do was to work out scaling rules and sizes for all of these extinct birds. What happens when a bird starts to evolve grand size? Do they all evolve towards the same sort of shape and size right. despite being unrelated to each other? Um, how can you can you work out the mass or the weight of a bird if you only have its fossil bones? Uh, I also got interested in birds' eggs as well because the mm. egg, bird eggs will increase in size as a bird, but not at the same rate, much slower. Mm. So a bird like an ostrich, those eggs are quite large, mm. but they're pretty small compared to its body size. Mm. Um, and the the puzzle bird for this has always been the kiwi, which... Most people you know, know about, they know anything about kiwi, they know that they uh, lay enormous eggs for mm. the size of their body. And there are famous photographs of X-rayed kiwis just before laying eggs. There's not a lot of room for actual bird there, it's just an egg. Yeah, true. Right, so there had been some suggestions that this happened because kiwi had developed from much larger ancestors, like perhaps like moa. Mm. And as they shrunk down, their mm. eggs didn't shrink at the same rate. And so they were trapped. This was an accident. It was they were completely stuck, trapped with this awfully inconvenient egg. Right, because they're shrinking and their yeah, egg yeah. is staying the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there were these things called allometry, which is the differential rates of scaling between as things get bigger or smaller. Was that okay. was the sort of stuff I was studying. Yeah. And the more I studied this, the more bogus that explanation seemed to me. Hmm. Partly because kiwi are not descended, in fact, from giant moa-sized birds. They descended from small flying ancestors. And all the reasoning, the argument that was being used by the scientists concerned to justify this uh, was just hand-waving. It was based on no actual data, uh, no, and, and it had been published in an issue of um, uh, Natural History Journal um, for the Smithsonian. Hmm. So a pop popular magazine article, and everyone just accepted this as gospel. Right. So what I discovered is that instead of looking at single eggs, which is the way museums do because they collect one egg of everything, mm. you actually have to look at the total number of eggs laid in a clutch and, and lump those all together because that's sort of a measure of investment by the bird, the female bird each season. Mm. It's clutch mass, how much it has to produce. And it turns out that most of the relatives of kiwi lay quite a number of, lots of eggs of clutch. And kiwi lay just one, maybe two. Hmm. So uh, the conclusion of my thesis work, and this was something that was not foreseen at the start, as happens mm -hmm. usually, there's a whole chapter where I worked out, that kiwi eggs are not actually large. They are exactly the size you would expect hmm. if the kiwi lays just one. I see. So, so instead of laying three or four smaller eggs, yeah. you're laying one or two, so the volume is similar. Yeah, so the question becomes a different question, which is why is it the kiwi only have one or two chicks? Right. right. And that's a very different sort of problem to solve. 
And it turns out that kiwi chicks are so well provisioned by all the yolk in that egg that when they hatch, they don't even need to be fed by the parents. Mm. They basically hit the ground running. They're They're independent. Yep, good to go. Wow. And so the parents put a lot of investment into the initial stages, but they then don't have to do all that parental care afterwards. Ah. So that's a good trade-off for them. Yeah. Um, So that was a really interesting little research project, and I'm glad I did it. And it taught me how to do science and how to communicate science. And uh, so I came back to New Zealand in 2007 and tried to find work doing science, which is a lot harder. Mm. Uh, so I was able to dust off my IT skills and was working with a research unit doing information design and publishing, mm-hmm. uh, which I was also teaching occasionally even while I was at Duke part-time to pay the rent. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a job opened up at the University of Canterbury uh, in the Learning Skills Centre, where working with postgraduate students helping them get through their thesis experience, Mm. but also teaching workshops and information presentation, data display, uh, scientific posters, giving talks, science writing, Mm -hmm. all this communication stuff that I've been doing at that stage for almost 20 years. Mm. Um, And it was really, it was rewarding work. It was was really nice to see students, postgrad students who often didn't have a lot of support. They're often from overseas. They might be the only PhD student in their department. Mm completely different experience from what I had um, and it really helped it was nice to be able to help them get through that rather challenging time yeah um, and I was doing that at the time the Christchurch earthquakes happened mm. and you know the university I was in the learning skills center when the quakes hit right as we raced outside watched all the cars rocking backwards and forwards in the car park mm-hmm. um, my Cashel Street flat was closed off by the army for a little while, no power or water. Um, I moved back in there and got to watch buildings be demolished around me for weeks and weeks afterwards. Mm. So, you know, any Christchurch person knows these sorts of stories. Uh, But that was a very challenging and in some ways exhilarating time because all of the assumptions that we'd had about what Christchurch was like and that it was not a very, not a very interesting city. It was kind of dull, in fact. And why were we here? Uh, we're thrown up in the air, and we all had to reinvent what we wanted Christchurch to be and what could happen as a result of this disaster. Mm-hmm. So this was a time when the council ran the Share an Idea initiatives, when there were spontaneous groups of community members getting together to finally say, this is what I want my city to be like. Mm-hmm. These are all the things I'd like. And people to write all that down, try and collate it, put a huge amount of work in to produce a document um, that had a vision for a future Christchurch. Mostly, you know, some of it quite unrealistic, mostly very um, utopian, but it was this was guaranteed, this is what people actually wanted the city to be mm-hmm. like. Which in a way, there's not many times in the life history of a city where you get to reimagine or, yeah. you know, think about what what was and what will be. Exactly, yeah. Mm. This was a very singular historical moment. Mm. I guess the same sort of thing happened in Napier in the 1930s, mm. probably not without as much public, cons- with less public consultation. Mm. Um, so there was a feeling of you, of you exhilaration in the air, and a lot of people were energized, running around, doing gap filler projects, um, setting up community gardens. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it all sort of drained away. And um, as we realized that that share an idea um, document would be put aside mm. and rather duller bureaucratic forces would move in and 
Yeah, and the history of the city in the last few years was generally a series of disappointments one after another, mm. only recently seeming to be turned around. I've been back in Christchurch now for a few days and really impressed by mm. uh, some of the initiatives that are now happening, like Tūranga, the new library, mm. which is extraordinary. Yeah, it's really impressive, isn't it's it? It's the best library in New Zealand. Mm. I don't know, I haven't been to the other ones in Australia, but perhaps it's the best library in Australasia. Mm. Uh, really amazing forward-thinking building. So it's great to see that some things like that can actually happen. Mm. So that it gives us hope that the city is going to going to be a vibrant and interesting place. Mm. Um, That's certainly my hope. I've been back almost three years now, having yeah. lived overseas for eleven years. And one of the reasons we came back was to be part of that rebuild, to sure, be part sure. of the you know the reconstruction yeah. and things. Yeah. And we actually connected at this um, the Great Southern Unconference. Mm. Uh, we didn't talk at that point but we tweeted with each other and yeah. set up this meeting because this As we're recording this 2018 yeah that's right yeah. yeah um we're recording this on the monday and so we that was on the friday evening and the saturday yeah which was kind of one of those unconference you know we don't know what we're going to talk about mm -hmm. and then break out into our sessions and um how did you how did you end up coming on to that? I came along, I was invited by Stephen Judd to the first one um, okay. because I'm the sort of person that tweets a lot and rambles on about big ideas. Mm. And Stephen seems to think that's interesting. So he invited me to the first one. I really enjoyed it. Got to um, toss ideas about with a whole lot of people, of interesting people, and was really happy to be invited back. Mm. Um, yeah, I think unconferences like that, I, I really love the structure of an unconference. Mm. The idea that you can have a professional meeting that isn't scheduled PowerPoint slides one after another mm -hmm. and get something useful out of it. And I've been trying to sell the idea of that structure of a meeting to colleagues in science and tech mm. and hoping that in the university system and the museum world, not a lot of biting, I'm afraid. Right. Um, it's a bit of a challenging notion it is but I, um, it, if they have come along to one they'll see how it can actually work yeah the thing i love about it is that it gets people out of their silos yeah and you know i, I work as a lawyer but i can meet an environmental social scientist or i can meet sure, you know sure. a politician or i can meet a whoever and actually come across with different ideas mm, that's true and actually yeah. interact with them not just listen to them give a talk yeah yeah, yeah that's right and exchange ideas and then, yeah. yeah, so out of that, I think on, you tweeted a list of podcasts and readings sure. and things. And so we had a session. Um, so one of the problems with an unconference format is that if you're not careful, it can be just a lot of fun ideas being tossed around by people, mm. but without anything actually being achieved. Mm -hmm. So I'm always looking for sessions where people decide we're going to make something mm -hmm. or produce a document or come up with a statement or policy or manifesto. Right. Um, so there's something concrete that you yeah, can take away. Yeah, not just away. hot words. That, you know, not just hot words. Just... I'm always pushing for those, those things. So a conference can do that. Yeah. And so someone just casually mentioned, can we just talk about our favorite books and podcasts? Mm. And I said, yes. I volunteered immediately to, to run that session. Yes. It happened. It wasn't even on the schedule initially. We just grabbed people, fil filtered into the room. We got about 10 folks. Yeah. And we spent an amazing hour and a half going around talking. And it's more than just saying, this is my favorite book. Yeah. It was people explaining, like, I love this author because she deals with trauma and how to survive a bad time mm -hmm. and i had a bad couple of years she said and this has been really helpful to me mm -hmm. uh and others would then chime in and say yeah this is the i understand what you mean and this is the sort of book or podcast that helped me through that yeah someone else said i just read an amazing memoir about auschwitz 
uh, the person who tattooed all of those arm tattoos in the concent- in the death camp. Mm. And someone else says, well, if you want to talk about Auschwitz, you have to read Primo Levi and his memoir mm. of being surviving Auschwitz. And, and so it's more than just a laundry list. It was a conversation yeah. about what's, what do we appreciate about podcasts and books, what, what, what enthralls us, why are these things our favorites? Yeah. Uh, and so the co- I was taking notes all through, and as you do, you then put up a Google Doc immediately afterwards and leave it open for comments as well. So, yeah, oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, so that's something nice to be able to share. Yeah, and a shout-out to Rachel Inch, who I think mentioned Seeds podcast in yes, that session. that was one of the and podcasts. And it ended up on yes. the list. So that's, that's right, always... and I hadn't heard of Seeds, but now I certainly have. <laughs> now so. you have. There yeah, we go. yeah, exactly. It's all good. Yeah. So can we just talk a little bit about Wikipedia and sure. how you got involved in that yeah. and what you're doing right yeah. now? Okay, well, after I um, was at Canterbury University, I got a job at the Whanganui Regional Museum looking after their MOA collection, oh, okay. which in many ways would be like the pinnacle of my childhood dreams, wouldn't yeah. it? Fascination. <laughs> with Extinct Birds, finally a museum curator, able to use my PhD work, um, and didn't have a lot of budget for research or outreach or anything much, unfortunately, Mm. but it was really nice to be in that environment. Mm. But one of the things I realized I could do was organize uh, Wikipedia volunteer events. Mm. Ponganui had a terrible Wikipedia page. Um, and I thought, well, I could usefully just organize a community group to get together in the library once a month and just try and make it better. Mm. And that grew. Uh, I started organizing events in Wellington and Auckland, just in my spare time and weekends and holidays. Yeah. Uh, because it was something that was easy to do. It had a good um, practical effect. You could see it. it was enthousiast- People get enthusiastic about it. Uh, and it didn't cost anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wikipedia doesn't cost anything to edit. Mm. Uh, and I was realizing it. One, so I did a, a, one of these career self-evaluation things, the exercise. And you're sitting down, you're feeling like, I feel stuck in my job. What is it I actually love about it? What do I like to be doing? How can I make these things happen? What are the smart goals for making that happen? You know, this sort of thing. Mm last year and I realized one of the things that I really enjoyed was Wikipedia and how could I not just edit Wikipedia pages but how could I instill that enthusiasm in other people and actually make a difference Uh, and Wikipedia is important it's big stuff you know it's the fifth busiest website in the world it's where people are getting their information now about almost anything and so flip that and it's also New Zealand's public face on the world and everything to do with New Zealand Every town, city, every iwi and hapu, uh, my primary face on the world is Wikipedia, mm. bad or not. So there's a lot to be done because New Zealand's Wikipedia coverage is really terrible. It's, <laughs> it's not good in right. general. Yeah. So the Wikimedia Foundation, which is the non-profit that run Wikipedia, exists just on donations, have a grant round every year for projects, outreach projects all around the world. Mm. And usually in the developing world where there's a lot to do. But I realized that nobody, they'd never awarded any funding to New Zealand. Mm. And yet the, we seemed like a country that was ripe for some work, well-educated population, good infrastructure, um, lots of people who would be keen to be editors, but mm. for some mysterious reason, not much participation. Right. And so I put in a bid to be supported for one year, one year contract, and I made up, I had to make up a title for it. I said, I want to be a Wikipedian at large. Which, you know, there wasn't, there hadn't been one. I'm the first one. Yeah. Um, so, it's the, yeah. the first ever 
right? Yeah, I, th- <laughs> I think I am. I think I'm the first official Wikipedian at large. That's literally my job title on the business cards. Yeah. Uh, and normally you're a Wikipedian in residence, so you'll be attached to a museum or a university oh, okay. or an archive or a library. And you'll be sit, sit there for a while working on that institution's policies and trying to help them engage with Wikipedia better. Mm. I wanted to do that through a bunch of different places mm. all around the country. Mm-hmm. So I put in, I was amazed. It's a very interesting funding round. Um, it's completely transparent. So you see everyone else's applications along with yours. Okay. I see what they're asking for. and then Consistent any, with the principles. And <laughs> anyone in the world can write comments for or against right there on the grant application for everyone to read right. what they think of it. People who support it can also write comments and support. Mm-hmm. Um, it goes through a review round. All the reviewers' comments are publicly posted, not just for you to read, but for everyone. It's quite, you know, very confrontational. Yeah, in, in some ways. <laughs> you get a chance to respond. Yeah. And then there's interviews and awards. So it's quite a long process, but I've just been involved with a, with a judging of uh, using the government funding round. Okay. Uh, and it's, which is the complete opposite, you know, secret bids. You don't hear anything until the announcements are made. Mm. You might be lucky to get a little bit of feedback about why you were successful or unsuccessful. Right. And that's it. And it's all done, you know, but it's rather more expensive too, because most of the grant jobs in Wikipedia is done by volunteers. There's a few permanent staff, but all the commenting and evaluating, these are volunteer mm. editors who are mm. taking the time to, to give feedback. Yeah. But it's, I'd say it's a pretty ruthless grant process, and every little weakness you know, is, is put out there. You don't get away with sketchy budgets or poor project plans. Mm. Um, so I was very thrilled to be able to get everything I asked for. So I am officially a Wikipedian for New Zealand. Mm-hmm. I have a, uh, not, a, not a very large salary, but enough and a little bit of travel allowance, and I can travel the country for a year. Mm. So I've spent three months in Auckland just before now. Uh, I was a resident at uh, Landcare Research, New Zealand Geographic magazine, which was lovely, and at Auckland Museum, who are probably the most progressive museum in this area in the country. Mm. And then down now stationed in Wellington for the rest of the summer, right through to April, and then I hit the South Island. And right. I'll be spending a month in Christchurch at least, yeah. and it looks as though it'll all be based at Canterbury University, mm. who seem to have a really good digital humanities team that are keen to support this sort of thing. That's great. Oh, it's a f- full circle as well for you, you know, exactly. having grown up here. And in terms of messages that you're getting out to people, like if we could summarize what are, what are some of the key takeaways that you want people to be aware of about Wikipedia? And also, how, how, how can people get involved? Right. Well, most people, many people don't seem to even realize you can edit Wikipedia literally by clicking the edit button and starting to type. I mean, if you vandalize it or type silly words in there, it'll be reverted almost immediately by software or by a human editor. So it's actually a little hard to vandalize it. But it means there's almost no barrier to involvement. Um, it's still a bit forbidding. So what I've found helps is if Wikipedia editors, volunteers, can form support groups. And I'm trying to encourage regular meetups in the pub or at cafes mm. in the main centres when I'm based. Uh, we also run public editing events in the main centres, which are usually themed on some topic. Mm-hmm. Almost everyone who turns up for these is a brand new editor, never touched Wikipedia before. So we run training sessions as part of that, and you get some help with from experienced editors. Mm-hmm. So um, each place I'm based, I tend to advertise those through Wikipedia and at large project page, um, or there's a Facebook group, 
yeah. compared to New Zealand and so forth. Um, so that's how to get individuals involved and to try and get them, because you get a bit stuck sometimes, it's going to be difficult, um, You something goes wrong, you don't know why, it's really important to have someone to help out. Mm. The other thing I'm trying to do is to get institutions to embrace a culture of openness um, and do, for example, if they're sitting on a library of thousands of photographs, but they're a publicly funded institution, all of those photographs were taken with taxpayer money, they should, I think, have a, they have a moral obligation to make those available for use mm. by the New Zealand taxpayers for whatever purpose the taxpayer wants. Mm. You know, they own them. Um, but it's been, until recently, uh, physically difficult and inconvenient and impractical for that to happen. However, with projects like Wikimedia Commons, which is a free repository of open images, it's possible to do bulk uploads, mm. tag, tag and categorize things, even have volunteers help you do it, and suddenly make all that stuff available for not just New Zealand taxpayers, but everyone in the world mm. who wants to use it. Mm. So getting institutions to think about that sort of attitude, like what are they sitting on, how can they share it, maybe they should be putting things out there for public use unless there's any particular reason not to. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's underlying the the theme or the you know why I get involved yeah is that you're actually helping to build um, knowledge yeah right like is that the main <laughs> well that's the the movement they they the I'm not quite as you know pie in the sky mm-hmm. uh, but there's definitely some of the Wikipedia folks they talk about the open knowledge movement with a capital M you know they're part of the Wikimedia movement because they really do believe philosophically mm-hmm. that. Their goal is for all the knowledge in the world to be available to everyone. Mm. And I think that's actually a pretty, that's not a bad. If you're going to have a goal on the first pass through, that's pretty good. Mm. You could do worse. Mm. So it's trying to get um, people to realize that, you know, I feel I was very lucky that I was supported and had all these privileges that enabled me to go and get a PhD in flightless birds. Mm -hmm. But after working in Whanganui for a few years, and realizing if there was a similar kid to me living in Whanganui, there's not as many opportunities. There's no research center. There's no university there. Mm. There's no scientists. I was one of the three scientists in town. Mm. Um, the opportunity to engage and do this sort of thing was so much worse. And Wikipedia for them would have been a primary source, primary research interest. And yet, you know, if the coverage of New Zealand and everything in it is so poor, then that, that kid's really being shortchanged. Mm-hmm. So it seems like it's a great, it's a social initiative, really, an enterprise to try and improve the representation of New Zealand and Wikipedia for ourselves, mm-hmm. not just for the rest of the world. Mm. Oh, it's really fascinating. And you must be meeting really interesting people through oh, the process, all the right? time, yeah. Yeah. No, it's wonderful to be able to you know meet up with scientists and academics. And I spent a day at Tehiku uh, um, radio station in Kaitaia recently mm. with an amazing team. Oh, it's a Māori language station and amazing team of Te speakers. Mm. We had a really good talk about Wikipedia, about things like sovereignty of indigenous knowledge and language mm. Mm. and the threats that are being placed, placed to that by big companies. We talked about open knowledge and sharing um, and really thrashed out some of these issues. And then the one of them sat down and recorded over 150 words in Te Reo mm. pronunciations that he cleared and licensed for a free use by anyone 
that we can then upload to Wikipedia pages to give pronunciation uh-huh. examples. It was particularly all the place names of Northland, for example. He wanted to have them pronounced just as the locals pronounce them right. as an example on every Wikipedia page. Mm. So, you know, I thought that was just wonderful. It was amazing to be in that environment um, and to see that people are really willing to donate their time and expertise if they can see the obvious social benefit of this sort of thing. Mm. Yeah, it makes sense. So if people are interested in finding out more, what's the best way for them to reach out to you or to sure. to do that? Well, my website is giantflightlessbirds.com. Great. <laughs> <laughs> and that's my email, my Gmail address as well, sure. Giant Flightless Birds. Um, if you search for New Zealand Wikipedian at large, you should, even in It'll Wikipedia, you'll find the project page. Yeah. There's a Facebook group, Wikipedia New Zealand. There's a link to a mailing list you can Great. sign up for as well. Oh, good. So it's not too hard to track down yeah. all the coming, upcoming events. Cool. Well, what we'll do is in the show notes, so when people are listening, there's a little place that has a description. Ah, we'll so we'll just drop in. If you email me all the links, we'll just put them in. Links and in the show can, notes. Yeah, exactly. Links in the show notes. Exactly. Yes. So, um, so oh, just, that's great. Well, I've really enjoyed our chat because where we started, you know, in a way, we've gone a full circle. Mm, so, you know, think mm. about you as the little boy going out yeah. to collect insects or whatever, put them in jars and mm. categorize them. You know, in a way, you then went on and did all the research and the, mm. the study into large flightless yeah. birds, which That's is an right. unusual topic. <laughs> and then and then now, um, but at the same time, keeping up with the technology. And mm. now it's kind of like a fusing that's happening of your whole life yeah. into yeah. this current project. And I think role. back on myself as a kid, what would I have loved about Wikipedia? Mm-hmm. Because back then we were living in a world of knowledge deficit. Mm. And I had to go to the local corner library and take out stacks of books each weekend to try and find anything out about New Zealand insects or birds. Right. And there wasn't much there. And now we're drowning in some ways in information overload mm. in which a completely different set of skills are needed. Kids need to learn how to navigate and assess the value of the information they're seeing. Yeah. If Wikipedia is a trusted source, we need to help them understand how to evaluate the reliability of a Wikipedia page and we need to make sure those pages are reliable. Yeah, it makes sense. Well, it's yeah. been fascinating to talk with you. Thank you so much for your time. I Thanks really so appreciate much. it. And now we're going to drive over and get you to your dinner. <laughs> Thanks right. so much. It's been lovely to be here. Good. Thank you. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that conversation, which was one of those wide-ranging ones talking about egg size, prehistoric birds, Wikipedia. We certainly went in a number of different directions. If you enjoyed it, then consider leaving a rating and review, subscribe to the show in the podcast app you're using, and check out the Facebook page as well. If you search Seeds Podcast, you'll find some behind-the-scenes information. Until next time!